Good morning. morning. We're in Psalm 24 today, so you can turn there as we get rolling here. I have just a couple of quick things I wanted to kind of bring to our attention today before we jump into God's Word. We have a few missionaries special visiting with us today from Word of Life International in the Philippines. So Mike and Pretty Van Pruyen have served with Word of Life for over 17 years. Uh, Mike is currently the field director in the Indo-Pacific region. And Mick and Ella Mae Tolentino also serve with Word of Life in the Philippines. Mick is the executive dean at the Bible Institute there in the Philippines. He teaches Bible and theology as well. We wanted to just kind of highlight that, introduce them to you. They've come a long way and they're here worshiping with us this morning. They will also be in the foyer afterwards, right by our missionary screen and board there. If you'd like to stop and talk with them, greet them, give them a warm TGP welcome, we would love for you to do that. Uh, learn more about their ministry and maybe some ways you can pray for them. We'd encourage you to do that as well. And as you just heard in our announcements, Kids Camp is coming up. Okay, so we need a few more volunteers for Kids Camp. So if you are open to doing that and you have the time, July 17th through 20th, I'd encourage you right after the gathering this morning, right out in the foyer, see Mrs. Becky Piazza. Uh, Becky is our TGP Kids Director, and she will find a place to plug you in. You do not have to have any special skills. Okay, we can find anything for you to do. All right, so we will plug you in if you're willing to help and have time that can do that. Uh, we would love to have you join us. It is a great week for us as a church family. Uh, a couple hundred kids come in here. They hear about Jesus every day and uh, do some fun stuff and do some crafts and activities, but they also have an opportunity to trust him and follow him with their lives. So it's a great week to be involved. If you can help with that, please see Becky after the gathering. Psalm 24. All right, we're going to read all the way through Psalm 24 this morning. Uh, it's only 10 verses. Uh, then we're going to go back and kind of pull some things apart in it this morning. And this psalm particularly is one, it's the psalm of David. It's also one that is meant to kind of direct our attention very strongly into seeing God for who he is and what he's done for us. So you're going to see a couple repeated phrases here as we read. So maybe make a note of them. We're going to go all the way through and we'll unpack it a little bit. But the repeated phrases in here are meant for emphasis. Okay, so God is using this particular psalm to hone our attention in a couple of very specific ways. So read along with me if you would. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So as we look at God's word this morning and ask the Lord to help us see him as we look at his word, this psalm particularly kind of puts in front of us the astounding reality that God is the Lord of everything. 
of everything. And as the psalmist emphasizes this for us, he uses some names and some emphasis words in order for us to know how impactful that singular truth should be to us. See, it's easy for us to sit, even sit today, and for me to stand up and say, God is the Lord of everything. And then actually move on with whatever else is distracting us in this world. And what God, I believe, means for this particular psalm to be for us is a refocus. It's meant to hone us in and say, no, God is the Lord of everything, and that changes everything. It changes our perspective on everything, at least it should. And when the people of God walk well with God, they're reminded of the truth of who God is and how that changes their lives. See, God's character is bestowed for us here. It's kind of laid out. That the people of God have the privilege of knowing the Lord of all of creation. History tells us that this particular psalm was a psalm that was sung every Sunday morning in the temple during Herod's temple era. Every Sunday, they would sing this psalm. If you remember, think back a little bit. The psalms are literally the hymn book of the ancient people of God. That they were songs and they were meant for different seasons and different activities and when certain things were going on and different times of feasts, they would sing different parts. And this particular psalm was sung every Sunday to focus God's people on who he is. It was also most likely originally put together by David. God helped him do that when he was bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So if you can picture with me briefly, this, this huge processional heading into Jerusalem, right? The gates are there, the temple is inside, and as David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the Levites are carrying it on a cart, as the Lord has instructed, they have to be very careful. There was lots of things that the Lord told them to do in order to not be judged in that time. And they had to bring it into the city, and as David's bringing it into Jerusalem, this is what he is introducing to the people of God. As they behold the presence of God coming into God's city, he wants them to remember God is the Lord of creation. He's the greatest that you will ever encounter. He is the Lord, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. Many biblical scholars also think that this, along with some recordings uh, historically during the triumphal entry of Jesus, this was what the people were singing along with the Hosannas as Jesus came in through the Eastern Gate on that Palm Sunday. So this is a celebratory psalm that was used continually every Sunday because even as Jesus entered in on that Palm Sunday, at the very least, it would have been sung in the Temple Mount that day. That he is the king of glory. And this phrase that's repeated in the last few verses is connected later in scripture to Jesus himself. God's people have historically in the first century and, and ever since referred to Jesus as this title, the King of Glory. So as we look at all of those things, knowing that that's kind of the context for where this psalm is coming from, 
It's meant to be a celebratory psalm. It's meant to be sung together with God's people. And as you'll see here, we'll pull apart in a second. There's some phrases that the leader, the worship leader would use, and then the people would respond with phrases after that. So it's kind of a back and forth. It's engaging and it's, it's community worship for God's people. So this morning, I hope as we go through it, that even as we kind of mark the different places where a leader would say a phrase and the people would respond with truth, that we might even kind of see it that way as we go. That there are questions that are, that are important for God's people because questions have a tendency to redirect conversations, right? You're talking with somebody you have a relationship with or maybe you just met and they're just telling them about themselves and you're telling them about yourself. But when somebody starts to ask questions, what does that do? It engages you. It, it changes the tenor of the conversation a little bit. Wait, this person either is asking something about me or they're asking me something that the answer must be important because they would like to hear it. And in this Psalm, we see the worship leader in David originally walking God's people through questions that mean something for God's people. And the answers are vitally important because we need to be able to answer them with truth. So let's take a look at what God has for us here through this particular psalm. A celebratory psalm that was used originally with the Ark of the Covenant, which carried God's presence into Jerusalem, and then later sung on every Sunday during the area of Herod's temple. And now for us on a Sunday morning, we get to uniquely join together with the history of God's people and join in with what God has already done for centuries. And that is calling his people back to understanding who he is and how much he has loved them and done for them. And that's primarily what we're supposed to do as we get together as a church family is remind each other through God's word and through the work of the Holy Spirit, remind each other of who God is and his great love for us. That the king of glory would stoop down into creation in order to redeem his people. I, it's just a, that, that should be an awe-striking reality for us. That the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the creator of all things, the one who holds all of creation together, sent his son to put on flesh and bones so that our sin can be paid for for eternity. I mean, just that. We don't even have to go through the rest of the psalm here, right? That's good. We could shut it down right now and go back to singing. Because that, that one truth is really what, what all of God's word is redirecting us back to. Seeing God for who he is, knowing what he's done, and knowing how that changes us. These realities are ones that in David's time were pivotal for him. And David had, remember, this, this rocky up and down life. He was, he was God's man and flying high and on top of the world for certain periods of his life. And other times he was hiding in caves and his life was in jeopardy and he was doing things that a king shouldn't be doing in other times of his life. But in all of those different times, the ups, the downs, the ebb and flow of being broken people in a broken world, in all of those things, these are the songs of God's people that are meant to pull us back, pull us back to center and remind us of who he is. 
So here this psalm gives us three main truths, three big truths that hopefully will refocus our heart and recenter us in our walk with the Lord. The first one being in the first couple verses, and it's this. God's people are stewards who enjoy his goodness in all of creation. God's people are stewards who enjoy his goodness in all of creation. Look at verse one and two. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. That is everything. Just the, you know, David, David's a poet. Remember, he's a, he's a singer, he's a poet, he's an artist. So he's putting some words around this idea of, I'm a little bit, I'm not, I'm not so much a creative, uh, I don't think, personally. But um, so I usually try to boil things down to the most succinct phrase in the most direct way to say it, right? And basically, what David's saying here very eloquently and using some creative artistic words and poetic words around is this. God rules over everything. The creation he created and the fullness thereof of creation and everyone who's in it. So God, God's sovereignty, his, his authority in the world, if we just look at reality, is not to be questioned. Because he is the one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell within. Verse two, why? For he is founded upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. So David used these two kind of word pictures for us, very, very tangibly for us, both actual dry land, earth, he's talking about, and people who exist on that land. God establishes it among the seas and the rivers so that his people, the people that he created that bear his image, could live well in it and steward his creation well. What does it look like to steward God's creation? It looks like taking care of that which God has set before us. Most importantly, and we'll see this as we continue on in the text this morning, most importantly, the crown of his creation being people, image bearers of God. That we would steward our relationships with others, that we would invest in the people that God has created and placed on his earth in a way that honors the glory of the Lord. We're stewards who enjoy his goodness. No doubt when David's writing this, he probably has in mind some very familiar verses from the Pentateuch, namely the first verse from the Pentateuch, which David would have known well. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as David is writing this song and leading God's people to sing it, he is no doubt thinking back to the original couple verses of the Pentateuch that God has created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of all things. In our world, in our lives, and in our day and age, that truth is one that Satan wants to erode. That, that he, I am convinced of this, and I've, I've thought this for years, and some folks that have done some leading in my life, mentoring in my life, kind of reinforced this with me, that if you were the devil, 
And you could get rid of creation itself, the idea that God made everything. If you can get rid of that one truth, you can then get rid of everything else about God. Because if he's creator, if he is the creator of all things, then he has authority in all things. When you create something, you get to say what happens. You design it, you set it in motion. The creator is over the creation. And if we can in some way realize and remember constantly that all that we see has come into being at the hand of God. It changes how we see the world. Also, the devil would want nothing more than the world to think there isn't an actual creator and therefore everybody's their own authority and you can do what you want. And don't we see that everywhere? We've seen that in the history books and we see it now. The denial of the creator being over the creation is actually the start of the downfall of everything. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Through the work of the Father, he spoke it into being. That's why I think David starts there. He goes on to, to kind of engage with the people in a in time of praise, question and answer, and kind of a refrain back and forth. But he wants to establish this truth first. We're going to praise the Lord because we know who he is. That, that's why you do it. And, and when we gather together as a church family, we don't sing and pray and, and give and, and all these things just because it's something the church does, because it's something you're supposed to do. No, we do it because we've encountered the living God. The living God. There's nothing he's going to ask you to do that's too much. Why? Because he's in control of everything. So as stewards, we do what the owner, the creator, has asked us to do. And that's what the rest of this psalm is about, the first two verses getting played out. The Lord of everything, the creator of all things. Genesis 1-1 was ringing in David's ears as he was writing this and singing it. Later, John, as he writes John 1, 1 through 5, I'm convinced was thinking about Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and was thinking about Psalm 24 because even John, who was raised in the, the Jewish belief system, he would know the Pentateuch and he would know Psalm 24 and it would be part of God's people. And John writes in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Referring to Jesus. Every time you hear that, the word, he's referring to Jesus. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, isn't that amazing? I... The more we get to study scripture and, and hopefully together and on your own, isn't it amazing how hundreds and thousands of years the truth remains consistent? Genesis 1, Psalm 24, John 1. Because God never changes. And truth doesn't change no matter how people want to spin it. Truth is truth. 
You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to not believe it. But me saying something isn't true doesn't make it not true. The being that existed before the creation of the world is the one who says what is true and what's not. The one who created all things and holds it all together is the one who gets to define what truth is. Not us. We're not God. We often want to play God in our own lives. But it would make no sense. It's actually even illogical for us to think that we get to define truth because I would define it differently than you and differently than the next person and so would everybody else, which could create complete chaos. That makes no sense. But what's reality is there's a creator. The creator has established what is true and right. And the world hasn't changed since Genesis. Genesis 1, Psalm 24, John 1, all the same. In Exodus 19, God says, all that the earth is, all in the earth is mine. But in his goodness, he has shared it with us as people. He's the possessor of heaven and earth, Genesis 14 tells us. And we are simply, it's good to think about it this way, we are guests on his planet. <laughs> We're guests. So stewarding what he has given us is the call. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that we are stewards of all that he has given us to enjoy. So God is the creator. God is the sustainer. And God has put his people in his creation to steward it well. Part of that stewarding is worship. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Verse three, David goes on. Now he, he's established truth in the first two verses. So this is bedrock truth. No questions in those first two verses. You notice that? He didn't ask, who do you think the Lord of creation is? Who do you think made everything? It's not a real question. They knew who had made everything. They had already followed him in, in their lives. And the people of God were singing along with David about the truth that's established in the first two verses. But then there's some questions and response that engage the people in worship. So the first truth is God's people are stewards who enjoy his goodness in creation. The second truth that we see here is God's people are worshipers. So we are stewards and we are worshipers who experience his grace and redemption. Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And remember, these are poetic images. So as David's writing this, this is Israel is, is set, or Jerusalem is set on a hill between valleys. And, and as you go up, there's, this is one ancient, Israel will be the city of David. And, and you had to literally ascend up a hill in order to get to the top. And as you're ascending up the hill, this is the question that's asked. Who gets to go up the hill of the Lord? Who gets to do that? And then second question, who shall stand in his holy place? On the top of the temple mount, on the top of Jerusalem, there's the temple mount where the temple existed, where the presence of God resided. So David's asking, who gets to go up this hill? And who gets to go in there? Where his holy place and, and where he resides, his presence is amongst his people. Who gets to do those things? Verse 4. He who has clean hands. This is a section where the people respond. So verse 3 is the question of the worship leader. 
And verse four is how people respond. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, that's who gets to go in. Those with a clean hand, clean hands and a pure heart. So without clean hands and a pure heart, you're not going into the presence of God. Because we know this throughout history. Everyone who entered into God's presence without clean hands and a pure heart, they end up being judged because God cannot be in the presence of sin that hasn't been paid for. So the people are reminded here as David's leading them through, who gets to go up the hill? Who gets to go into his holy place? Who gets to be in the presence of God? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. Unfortunately, as we read those truths and we look at those truths, we are led to understand that it's not us. We don't have clean hands and a pure heart. We are broken. We're sinful. We probably had an issue already this morning. Okay? I mean, maybe we need to move the gathering into like six in the morning. You get up, you get right here, right? Any, I, I actually, that would make things worse for me. All right, 6 a.m. is not good, okay? So, uh, <laughs> but this reality, by the time we get in here at 10 o'clock on a Sunday, we're around God's people, we start singing and praying, we've already had issues with clean hands and a pure heart this morning, right? Maybe it was just a struggle to get here. I don't need to go again. It's summer. It rained all day yesterday. The sun's out. Now it is horribly humid outside, so that's helpful. And there's AC in here. So that's one attractive feature. But, but that's not why we come, right? This, this is the reality of God's people. The leader says, who gets to go up the hill? Who, goes, who gets to go into his holy place? And everybody says, those are the clean hands and a pure heart. And you got to know everybody at that point is like, not me. I don't want to do that. Because God's presence can't be around the sin that inhabits this world without redemption. See, there was this select group of people amongst the Levites that got to go into that holy of holies, into the presence of God. And they went through an amazingly intricate process of purification. Confessing sins, even physically washing to, as a picture of them being washed by God's forgiveness. And there was only a very select few. And then even at one time, there was only one. And that rotated a little bit through some of those select Levites and priests. But there was almost no one. And the only people that could had to go through a unique process of purification and cleansing in order to go there. So this first question is a reminder we're all broken and not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord of creation. Verse five, he will, who will? Those who have clean hearts and a pure heart, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So for the people responding to the worship leader here and singing this with him, the response was, we know the system that God has previously set forth in his law 
of how we can be forgiven of our sins. There was a sacrificial system in place. There was the offering of sacrifices. There was, there was ritualistic cleansing that had to happen, washing and praying and confessing sin and repenting of it for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. But then even for the larger people of God, the couple million people that would have been part of this refrain, they had an opportunity. They had opportunities to bring their sacrifice. The hard part of the Old Testament law is this. The Old Covenant was temporary because they would offer sacrifices and then they knew we're going to mess this up again. We need to offer more sacrifices. And this was the constant walk for God's people. In order to be in a place where we could be around, they could be around his presence, they could commune with God, they had to be part of the sacrificial system constantly, over and over and over. God's word continually tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So where do we stand? Not with David and the people of Israel because they had the old covenant, the system in which they could participate in this. So it wasn't totally depressing to re refrain back to the worship leader, verse five, that those with the clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It wasn't, we're all stuck, there's nothing we can do. No, God had made a way. So these verses are a reminder that God had made a way. Without God's way, Nobody was going there and living through it. But with God's way, there was redemption that was possible. And the people of God were meant to worship because God had made a way for them to be saved and their sins to be forgiven and them to have a relationship with him. As he goes on here, worshipers, God's people are worshipers who experience his grace. For us, we don't live under the old covenant that David and the people refraining here and singing would live under. We instead live under the new covenant. As Jesus came, lived the life we couldn't live, died a death that we deserve, shed his blood, perfect blood, not a lamb's blood, not sinful blood, perfect blood. And as Jesus shed that on the cross, the old covenant is completely fulfilled once for all. That's, that's what Jesus means when he says on the cross, it is finished. The, the constant working of God's people through the sacrificial system to make sacrifices and confess and, and keep coming back to that is made final in Christ. It's another picture of how hundreds, thousands of years earlier, God may have said this truth in Genesis. When sin enters the world, God says, there will one day be a day that I will send the Redeemer to crush the head of the snake. It's a symbolic picture. To defeat Satan once for all. God's people here in David's time, they had reason to worship because they had a way to have a relationship with God through the sacrificial system of the old covenant. How much more do we? I mean, if you can picture hundreds of thousands of people singing these praises to God, right? Because they know God had made a way for them and they felt like they knew they were so blessed by God instituting a way for them to have a relationship with the creator of all things. But even now for us, 
Jesus' death on the cross makes a way for us. It washes us, it purifies our hands, cleanses our hands and purifies our hearts. So we get to go into God's presence because of Jesus. Not because of us, because we all know, if we're really honest, there's no way we're getting there on our own. I mean, you can, you can work as hard as you want, do as much good stuff as you want, and you walk away and it doesn't take very long to mess it all up. And then you find yourself in this complete cycle all the time. I gotta do enough good stuff to outweigh my bad stuff. And if we're honest, that never really actually works. But God says, I'm gonna send my son as a picture of what you're reading right here in Psalm 24. The fulfillment of what David knew was true in the old covenant, but David looked forward to the coming Messiah who was going to finish the sacrificial system. So we should engage with God's people, like here in Psalm 24, because of what he has done for us in Christ, once for all. Only those that stand in his righteousness will be able to stand in his presence. You try to stand in your own righteousness in the presence of God, it is not going to go well for you, family. You stand in his righteousness because of Christ, and the Father looks to you and he sees Jesus in front of you. And while our lives deserve some judgment because of our sin, Jesus stands in our presence in front of us and says to the Father, this one's covered by me. Amen. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that should lead us to sing differently, to pray differently, to live differently, to engage and steward all that God's given us differently because Jesus stands in front of us and says, I got this one. I got this one. We're good here. Without him, none of us get there. Third truth we see in this, these last few verses, verses seven through 10, is that God's people are victors who celebrate his glorious victory. See, this psalm was sung a lot of different times. David uh, would have come into the, ten, the gates of Israel a couple different times being a victorious king. And they probably would have been singing this song about the Lord, but celebrating the victory that God had given to his people. And that's the same for us. I mean, it was true in ancient Israel. It's even more true for us. Those earthly victories that God gave David and his armies were temporary ones. The spiritual victory that comes through Christ is permanent, eternal, forever. That gives us even more reason to celebrate victory in Christ. David was commanding the whole city here as he walked into the gates to welcome the Lord and give honor to him. To reiterate one more time how good God has been. And how does he do that? Let's read these verses. This is the refrain. Because of the truth of verses one and two, because of the reality of verses three through six, that we're not righteous, only he is. Because of those two truths, God is the Lord of all of creation and all that's in it. And God has made a way for his people to be in his presence. Those truths lead us to verse seven. Verse seven, 
The worship leader would start with this refrain, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Lift up your heads. Look up, literally. Look up. Open the gates. Lift the doors that the king of glory may come in. And in his poetic language here, and I was kind of working my way through this, I thought to myself, don't we all have doors and gates that we put on our own lives? Don't we have rooms and little places inside of us where we compartmentalize some of our brokenness? I don't necessarily want God in that part. I mean, the broad majority, absolutely, Lord, come on in here, right? Fix these parts of me. But there's this struggle in us because we are people who still battle against the flesh and sin, that there's parts of our lives that we want to keep hidden. In some ways, and it's totally illogical when I say it out loud, but stay with me. We think we can hide them from God. How does that even make any sense, right? Believe me, I've had this conversation with myself. God won't notice that one. What? That's stupid. Why, why would I? He's made everything that I'm ever going to see. He's created me. He knows every cell in my body. He knows what's going to happen before I even do it. He knows what the future holds. And somehow I think I can hide something. That doesn't work. And while David's saying this for the people of God, throw the doors open, open the gates, throw up the drawbridge, everything. Open it all up so that the king of glory can come in unhindered. And that's the people responding by knowing that while the wording is a physical gate and doorways, they know the real meaning behind this is my life. Open up. Let the king of glory in. And let him take care of what you've broken. Verse 8, this question comes in now. After he says, lift up your, your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Verse 8, who is the king of glory? And here's the refrain that the people of God come back with every time this question is asked. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's who's the king of glory. And just so we don't get it twisted, we do not hold any remote understanding of trying to take glory and inhabit it in ourselves. We don't, there's no way we could even measure even a little bit to the glory of the Lord. Who's the king of glory? Not me. Not you. Sorry. We are not the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And just in case, because he probably knows that people didn't get it the first time, he says it again. Ready? Verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? Because you probably forgot five seconds ago when I just asked you, Right? Who's the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. That's it, folks. There's one answer to this question. Why? Because truth is truth. 
the Lord of hosts, and this word hosts is not like I'm going to host you over for dinner. This is the Lord of hosts, which means armies upon armies. That's what that Lord means. Hosts. Armies upon armies. Who is it that has the victory? The Lord. Who's the king of glory? Who's, who holds all the glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So this refrain in verses 7 through 10 encourages God's people to step into the victory that God has already secured. And that's where we're at today too. This doesn't change from the ancient days of David and Israel to now. We step into the victory that God has secured. Through Jesus, he wins. He has defeated sin and Satan and death. John chapter one says this, Jesus brings light into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Might look like it, I, mean, I, I know, we feel this. I feel this too. It's one of the reasons I don't read the news very often, okay? It feels like darkness is winning some days, okay? It's not. Why? For a number of things. We're all sitting in this room together. Darkness lost here. The light came in, made us new. But also because Jesus has completely, 100%, forever defeated the darkness. So no matter what things look like in your daily news feed, the darkness has not overcome the light. The King of glory, the Lord of hosts, and he is coming again. And I don't know how we're completely going to respond in that moment when Jesus returns. But I could see us maybe singing this song. I don't, I don't think he'd be uh, too upset with that. And the reality is this, we will also be singing these truths, those who are in Christ and have experienced his redemption and standing in his righteousness will be singing these truths for all time, eternally. Meanwhile, today, right here and now, we can live in the triumph of life in Christ and what he has done for us. The victory is the Lord's, and he has welcomed you into it in Jesus. Romans 8, as we close, verses 31 through 39, remind us of what it means to be victors who engage in the victory God has given us. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But nothing anyone does to you can separate you from the love of Christ. 
Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? David was singing about victory through the God of all creation and what he had brought to him. We get to sing about the victory that God has given us in Jesus that nothing can touch. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. So this morning as we pray and close and as we sing and as we go into all that God's called us to, let this psalm ring in your ears this week. Be reminded, who is the king of glory? The Lord. The Lord. He is the king of glory.